All right. Well, I'm Matthew. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome to the hills where we believe God has called us to follow Jesus, love our neighbors, and build an economically and racially diverse church. We're in the fourth week of our Advent series called Advent Conspiracy, where we are conspiring together to make Christmas meaningful again. And I hope as we've been going through these weeks that you've been uh, challenged, that you've been encouraged. Um, we took the first week, we, we said we're, uh, we want to worship fully, we want to spend less, we want to give more, we want to love all. And the first week, uh, Jeff reminded us that the baby in the manger was also warrior Jesus. And while it seemed pretty mellow that night in our stories, there was actually a great battle going on in another dimension, in the heavenlies, uh, so to speak, where Satan and God were at war that night. Uh, the second week, we talked about spending less, and I asked the question, what does your spending say about you this Christmas? What, is, what story is it telling? Is it t telling the story of Jesus, or is it telling a different story? And then uh, last week, after the service, if you missed it, my dad told me it was the best sermon I've ever preached. Now, if you weren't here, I didn't preach. Don't clap for that. I didn't preach. I didn't preach. Uh, oh, you're, you're fired. <laughs> what the, that's not what I, I'm joking. <laughs> but because uh, last week, if you weren't here, we were challenged. Uh, Raheel shared his story and Maywish's story about following Jesus in Pakistan and what that's been like for them and the persecution that they faced. Um, and it was a bit heart-wrenching and soul-searching uh, for all of us. Thank you again, Raheel, for sharing with us. Uh, today we want to consider that little phrase, love all. Easy, right? We, we know uh, the greatest commandments, uh, to love God and to love our neighbors. But it seems like at times when we are stressed out, when we are tired, when we've had a bad day, our capacity and our ability to love others is gone. You know what I'm talking about? Like, for example, yesterday we took the family Christmas shopping. Mm, all of us. Two carts, it's like the kids don't know what's happening, the baby, we had just all kinds of food for her, we just, you know, here, be happy, have some food. Uh, by the time we left, uh, Target, uh, the bane of my existence, that place, uh, but by the time, there was very little capacity for Elora and me to love one another, to love our kids, like, I mean, you can barely agree on anything at that point. And so this challenge of, of loving all at Christmas time can be tough because during the holidays, we're often spent, right? Like we are exhausted. We'll be going to parties, trying to make sure everyone is taken care of with the gifts. And um, if you've ever had a difficult time loving others during the holidays, you're not alone. Even old St. Nicholas had problems. St. Nicholas, Father Christmas, known as Santa Claus these days. Uh, but St. Nicholas was, was a real guy. And tradition tells us that he was at the first council of Nicaea. You're like, Matthew, what is the first council of Nicaea? It was the first time that the church kind of globally had gotten together in the 300s. 325 AD, uh, Emperor Constantine called a council together because the church was, was uh, starting to have some divisions in it. They weren't getting along, and so bishops from everywhere came to this council of Nicaea because there was a guy named Arius, and he, uh, what we call now a heresy, he taught that Jesus was not divine, this, this heresy of Arianism. And there's uh, not within uh, traditional uh, Christian, um, like our traditional Christian heritage and doctrine, whether Catholic or Protestant, this isn't an, is an issue. 
Uh, but there are some fringe groups that still say that Jesus was not divine. I say fringe, I mean fringe of like Christianity. Say they're somehow connected to Christianity, but say that Jesus is not divine. And, and so uh, they gathered this council together, most of the early councils. They got together to address some type of doctrine. And so they got together, talked about some doctrine, and from that we get the Nicene Creed. Most of the creeds that we have as, as believers, they come from uh, some kind of doctrinal discrepancy. So they got together, and the Nicene Creed, you may have heard it, it starts like this. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things, visible and invisible. And then it talks about Jesus substantially, because that's what the issue was uh, for the early church. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, both in heaven and earth, uh, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man. And so at this council, they, really, they were trying to affirm the deity of Christ. Well, tradition says that St. Nicholas was there. And as Arius is up there uh, speaking, the longer he goes, the more St. Nicholas is getting upset. Because this is a core doctrine of the faith that's, that's being attacked. So St. Nicholas gets up. He walks across over to Arius and he slaps him in the face. Old jolly St. Nick. <laughs> Wasn't feeling the love at Christmas. Now, like Matthew, is that true? That's what tradition says. Uh, there are the accounts. That's a little bit of thin ice. But I like that version of St. Nick. You know what I'm saying? I can identify with that version. In fact, it makes for good memes. Even I've got one here. I came to give presents to kids and to punch heretics. I just ran out of presents. <laughs> like for St. Nick, the spirit of slap came upon him, and he uh, wanted to slap that heretic. So it can be hard. The whole point of that <laughs> was to say it can be hard to love all, no matter who you are. And my hope today is that we will see the radical, subversive message of Christmas that turns the kingdoms of this world upside down. That Jesus came for the poor, he came for the marginalized, he came for the broken, he loved all, and following his example, we should do the same. So we're gonna start in Luke chapter two today, if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter two, verse one. It's on page 715 in the Bible under your chair, but Luke chapter two, it'll also be on the, the screen for you. Luke chapter two, verse one. It says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a, decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinus was governor of Syria, and everyone went uh, to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now, the, the story of Jesus uh, has become very familiar to us, and it seems pretty status quo. It seems safe. We have a very 21st century Savior. How many of you enjoy Hallmark movies? This is a safe place. You can confess. All right. We'll let Jesus be your judge. Uh, Dad, I'm taking your Christmas presents back. He raised his hand. Uh, and if you're a Netflix subscriber, it seems like uh, 
There's a ton of movies, Netflix originals, two taking over the Hallmark-type vein of sentimental Christmas story, but I digress. But the story of Jesus was anything but status quo. But because we celebrate it year after year, and because uh, we read the story, kids perform the story, like we just, it's the story. Like Jesus was born, God in the flesh, thank you, Jesus. You know, and, and I think we miss the subversive nature of what's taking place here. And I want to uh, unpack that just a little bit, how the, the birth story is countercultural, it's upside down, and there is no sugar-coated sentimentality in the birth of Jesus. And Luke chapter 2, is it warm in here today? Like, this place cannot get it figured out. Two weeks ago, we were freezing. Like, everyone had their jackets on today. I'm like, I apologize for the sweat. Um, in Luke chapter 2, uh, Luke mentions Caesar Augustus. Now, this is interesting that he would include this detail. Like, of all the details that he could include, um, and I don't know if you know who Caesar Augustus was, but he came after Julius Caesar. Just a bit of a Roman uh, history of, of Rome. Uh, do you remember what happened to Julius Caesar from Shakespeare? Et tu, Brute? Yeah, the Ides of March? Nobody. So, 44 B.C., we learned in high school and forgot shortly thereafter that Julius Caesar, the Senate thought that he had gained too much power. And so sen senators came around and they, they murdered him. And we're not quite sure if he said et tu Brute, uh, to Brutus, but he was stabbed multiple times. And, and when that happened, Rome was divided into three separate areas. And it was called um, the second, I can't even pronounce it right. I'm gonna have to, I don't even think I have it written, I do have it written down, triumvirate. Because they had three different rulers. And we had... Um, Octavius was one of them. Let's see, I've got Mark Antony and Lepidus. Now you're like, I've heard of Mark Antony, Cleopatra, Lepidus. What about him? I haven't heard of him. That's because he didn't last very long. So history's forgotten him. Uh, so in 44 BC, it was divided into three. And then uh, between the three rulers, they were all positioning themselves for power. Like they wanted to take over, and it wasn't a matter of playing rocks, papers, and scissors to see who was going to gain power. And so uh, some battles ensued. Lepidus, he was conquered pretty quick, but it took a while. Uh, but Octavius was finally victorious over Mark Antony and Cleopatra. And, and when he was victorious, or during this time, he changed his name from Octavius to Caesar Augustus. Um, and also during this time, uh, you need to know about Octavius. He was a, a far-removed nephew of Julius Caesar. But Julius Caesar had, had adopted him as his heir and adopted him as his son. And after Julius Caesar died, the Romans, they, uh, they made him a deity. They made Julius Caesar a deity. And so uh, Augustus, being the, the, um, the smart, strategic politician that he was, he said, well, if Julius Caesar is now a god, then I am the son of God, is the position that he took. And so after the, after the war and the Civil War, it was, very, it was quite bloody, Augustus was celebrated as a hero, and he was considered a great source of peace. In fact, for 200 years after and during his reign, there was peace, known as the Pax Romana in, in Rome. He was called the great savior to the people, and there was themes like freedom and justice and peace and salvation were part of his reign. And, and whenever the great deeds of Augustus were proclaimed, they were presented with the Greek term, Eangelion, Eangelion, which means good news or gospel. Like this is the gospel of Caesar Augustus. 
That was the good news that was proclaimed. He was called Lord and he came to be worshipped as a God on earth. And Roman citizens were commanded to pray to him. They, they built buildings in his name. They swore by his name. Uh, and it wasn't uncommon for emperors to be deified after they died. Like Julius Caesar was deified after he died. He became a god in, in their minds. But it was different with Caesar Augustus. He was deified while he lived. Um, and in fact, the poet Horace, who was a contemporary of Augustus, wrote about this deification. Upon you, speaking of Augustus, however, while still among us, we already bestow honors, set up altars to swear by in your name, and confess that nothing like you will arise hereafter or has ever arisen before now. Five years before the birth of Jesus, about 9 BC, there was an inscription in Rome that was written. And the inscription said, Since providence has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. That sounds like good news. Birthday of the God Augustus was the beginning of the good news for the world. And less than 100 years after Augustus had he had died and passed away, uh, the Roman historian Suetonius described the birth of Augustus. So this would have been about the time that Luke was actually writing down the story. In the background is this idea of an immaculate conception of Caesar Augustus. And this Suetonius said, when Atia, that's his mother, had come in the middle of the night to the solemn service of Apollo, Apollo was a god that they worshipped, she had her litter uh, that was the, the carrier that they put on the shoulders and the men would go around the city. So when that was set down in the temple, she fell asleep. A serpent glided up to her and shortly went away. When she awoke, she purified herself as if after the embraces of her husband. And at once there appeared on her body a mark in colors like a serpent and she could never get rid of it. So that presently she ceased ever to go to the public baths. In the 10th month after Augustus was born, uh, and was therefore regarded as the son of Apollo. So by the time Luke is writing this, it is firmly established in the Roman mind that Caesar Augustus, not only is he a son of God from Caesar, but he's also the son of Apollo. And so he is called the son of God. He was the great savior of the whole earth, bringing peace to Rome. The announcement of this was heralded as good news. He was considered God manifest. He was considered God in the flesh. Does this sound familiar? And the Jews in particular were looking for a savior. They were anticipating someone that would come and bring deliverance. And, but not just the Jews. People were looking for someone that would, uh, were looking to power and might. And, and to what Rome had become is like, this is it. Like, this is going to usher in this golden age on earth where wars will cease. And Caesar Augustus was to deliver that peace. So in light of that, let's continue reading Luke chapter 2, verse 8. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven. And on earth, peace 
to those on whom his favor rests. The coming of Jesus, as told by Luke, is utterly subversive. The mention of Caesar Augustus, it isn't incidental, it isn't accidental. Luke, Luke couldn't come out just in and say, like, Jesus is the true emperor, the true king of the world, because that would have had some repercussions for the Christians at that time. But instead, he paints uh, this picture of, of Jesus in contrast to Rome and what Rome had done. And Luke demonstrates how Jesus' kingdom stands in stark contrast to the kingdom of Rome and to the world's kingdom. And, and what Augustus claimed about himself is turned upside down by a baby that was born into a system of oppression created by the Romans, and what was supposed to be true of Caesar was actually true of Jesus. Like this, I mean, for the early Christians to get this gospel and to read this, for us, we don't get the illusions. Like, who's he talking about here? Is he talking about Caesar? Or is he talking about Jesus? I mean, Augustus was supposed to be the savior, the Lord, the bringer of peace. His birthday was good news. His empire was salvation. And, And here, in the corner of the most powerful empire on earth, it was shepherds who were there. Not rulers, not priests, not people with means or authority, not the elite. The first to hear the good news were the shepherds, lowly shepherds. And it's almost like all the titles for Caesar were attributed to Jesus. So that, I mean, if they had different titles, maybe you could possibly worship both. But when it comes to Jesus and the birth story, you have Caesar, son of God, Jesus, son of God bringing peace, bringing peace. And it's almost like Luke wants you to make a choice, like to have to make a choice. Are you going to go after Caesar and the kingdoms of this world and the way that this world operates, or are you, are you going to go after Jesus and the way that Jesus operates? And, and the difference between these two saviors cannot be overstated. Augustus, he brought the sword and, and the shield and banners of his people, and Jesus was born in an animal manger. On a bloody cross, he was put in a borrowed tomb. One kingdom was built on power, the other on freedom. One was built on oppression and bondage, the other on liberation. And and Augustus was the embodiment of the best the world had to offer. Like when he brought it all together at, at that time, I mean, he brought some peace into the world. But Jesus offers a dangerous alternative, a different power, a different glory, a different peace, a different salvation, and, and Christmas is about the Son of God. I love um, the old Christmas carol, the hymn, O Holy Night. It says, truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Change shall he break for the slave is our brother. The birth of Jesus is divine insurrection. It is God coming an outright revolution to Rome and to the kingdoms of the world. And so the Christmas story actually forces us to choose instead of being just a nice sentimental story. God wants to know, are you going to serve my son? And in everything about Jesus' birth, from the announcements to the parents to the guest, it's just an upside-down kind of story. Like God is on the side of the powerless. He's on the side of the outcast, the impoverished. And, I mean, think about the people who were there. I'm sure you've heard sermons, and, but just to start with Mary. Like, she was a woman. Like, Matthew, that's obvious. Good one. A lot of study that took. Uh, but women weren't really educated. She was probably illiterate, a teenager, had no agency. She had uh, no clout, no pull. That's who God used. That's who God came to. Joseph. 
Joseph was poor. Like, how do we know he was poor? A few verses down in Luke chapter 2, after Jesus had been born, they took him to the temple. Because that's what you did as a Jew. You were commanded to take the babies, especially the firstborn, to the temple, offer a sacrifice on their behalf. And when they went there, uh, verse 24 in Luke 2 says, they offered a pair of doves, or two pigeons, in keeping with the law. And in most Bible, there's a, a little, uh, like a letter or a number that points you to the bottom of the page. Because at the bottom of the page, it'll tell you Leviticus chapter 12. So you go back to Leviticus chapter 12. And it tells you what you're supposed to do when you have a, a firstborn. You're supposed to go to the temple and offer a lamb. But if you can't afford a, a lamb, then you can offer a pigeon. So why didn't Jesus' parents offer a lamb? Because they were poor. They had no means. The shepherds, during Christ's day, the shepherds, like on the, on the social status ladder, bottom rung. Like you couldn't get much lower than, than a shepherd. Religious leaders often didn't let them into the temple. They were unclean. Uh, they couldn't be a witness in court. And so they, they were outcast. Um, the Magi, right? They, they brought gifts. Maybe they were well-to-do. But they were Gentiles, outsiders. They were not allowed in the temple. They didn't know the Old Testament law because if they did, they wouldn't have had to go to Jerusalem to say, where is this king supposed to be born? And the religious leaders there had to tell them and point them in the right direction. And, and so Jesus coming into the world the way he did proves that he came for all of us and that he loves all of us. He didn't come for the rich or the privileged, privileged few. In fact, you could say that he came more. The case can be made that he came more for the poor and the needy and the oppressed because Jesus himself was poor. I like uh, what one, one writer said about Jesus being poor. He said, the very first statement that Jesus ever voiced about his concern for the poor, oppressed and marginalized people, was when he cried out as one of them, eyes tight, mouth wide open, wailing, kicking, it was one of the most profound acts of solidarity the poor and marginalized he could ever make. In other words, just when he cried as a baby, he was crying out for the poor because he was born with and as someone who was poor, someone without means, someone without agency. Um, and this, in the story of Jesus, the birth story, we see what becomes a central uh, factor in, in the life of Jesus and in what Jesus proclaimed and its re status reversal. Like Jesus is always reversing status, like lifting, lifting up the poor, lifting up the broken. Um, and it's the poor who would become first-class citizens in God's kingdom. In uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about us and our status reversal when it comes to the kingdom of God. He said, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Like think about some of your, you're here, us, us family. Think about your past. Think about this past week, maybe even. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. So what God was doing in Jesus is what he's been doing all along is changing our status. Like from those who are broken and those who are outside and those who are marginalized to those who are invited in. Those who are welcomed in from all walks of life. It, it doesn't matter. That is the story of Jesus and his birth. And he was born to poor parents in a corner of the empire, not to privilege and to wealth. And he chose the shepherds to reveal the birth of his son and Gentile wise men to appear to worship. And because Jesus came for all. 
Jesus came for all. He came for all. But I wonder why does it seem sometimes that Christians were, were known for more than about what we're against and what we're for? Like, have we stopped proclaiming this good news that is for everyone? And, and why are, as Christians, so often using the methods of the empire as a church, like trying to go after power, trying to go after influence, trying to coerce and, and get people to uh, line up with what, what we want them to line up so it makes it easy for us. Uh, why do we so badly want our political party to be in power? Like, why, why do we have to continually go after power? I mean, that's the way we tend to operate. But Jesus offers something different, a different way going away from power. And when we have experienced the love of God, there is a, a mandate on our lives that we extend that love of God to others. So Christmas, it's not a sentimental story. It's just the beginning of the good news of Jesus. A, a news, the good news that stands in contrast to the good news of the empire and what Caesar Augustus represented. And so as a, as a church, I mean, we can't be people and we can't be a, a church that just buys into the way of power and self-interest and self-preservation. But like our Savior, we've been called to be vulnerable, to go away from power. We've been called to love, to love freely, to love even our enemies and even our children after a long day of shopping <laughs> and our significant others when we don't agree on said presents that you're buying. We are called to love. <laughs> she wasn't in here for the first part. Got away with it. Uh, we have been called not to side with the empire, but to sit with the terrified, to comfort those who mourn, to join the meek and the merciful, to be a counter-cultural people. There's two kingdoms at war on the earth. They're at war 2,000 years ago. They're still at war today. One is led by people like Caesar. The other is led by Jesus. One is built on oppression, wealth, power, self-interest, control. The other on love, faith, hope, freedom, grace, compassion, and truth. And one demands a sacrifice. The other was the sacrifice for us. It's the revolution of Jesus embodied in the story of his birth, and it demands our choice today. Like, which kingdom are we going to go after? Which kingdom are we going to align with? Our, our Savior, who is humble, who was born among the poor and the marginalized, or are we going to go after power? Are we going to go after influence and our self-interest and self-preservation? You want to come?